our passage today. A few weeks ago, we, we transitioned out of Hosea chapter 1 through 3, and we kind of went from, as I said a few weeks ago, as Shane said as well, that we're going kind of from the bedroom into the courtroom. And what I mean by that is Hosea chapters 1 through 3 show us how the prophet Hosea was a living illustration of the people's hearts. His, his home life was a living illustration of the people's hearts in Israel. In other words, they were spiritually adulterous. And this was being explained to us and shown to us in, in vivid detail with his own wife's continuing adulterous ways. And then in chapter 4, we kind of came out of the intimacy of the bedroom and we went into the courtroom. And, and I think that there are times where we have hurdles that, that, that come into our minds when we think about the difference between intimacy and and the courtroom, but what we're realizing is the comprehensive nature of the work of God. And as a church, we want to be a people who are filled with the fullness of God. And I think that this is important for us to understand that God is both just and intimate with us as his people. That there's a context for us to have relationship and even have a right standing relationship through Christ with him in either setting. In either setting, that the most intimate of moments, those moments that, that might even feel like that's something that you can't bring up in church, those moments God is with you then as well. Or those moments where you feel like your life is on full display and everybody around you all of a sudden sees the, the garbage that might have been going on in your household or in your home and it feels like I can't even go to church because people know what's going on in my life right now. And yet God can stand justly ruling and reigning over those circumstances as well. It's important for us as people who want to be filled with the fullness of God to understand the utterly comprehensive nature of his work and not to look at his justice and his love for us as if they stand in opposition to one another. No, God is going to have his way with his people and he is going to love us and he is going to mature us, and he is going to claim us and pursue us in all of the circumstances that we face. That's kind of what we've been setting up to up to this point. But we hear a similar refrain. We hear the words at the beginning of our passage today, Hear, O Israel. And you may think, well, this is the beginning of another case against the people of Israel. Actually, what this is, is God stepping in as judge... And he, is off, and he is rendering his verdict in the case that started in the beginning of chapter 4. Now, it can be difficult for us to think about God in that way. Maybe there are experiences that you've walked through with, with court proceedings and, 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 and the sense of justice in this world. And you realize that in this world, there is nothing that is truly just. And so it leaves us longing and groaning for something more. Well, we're going to explore a few of those things today as we go. But before we get into that, I do want to just greet you by saying, Happy Reformation Day. Happy Reformation Sunday. And, and I say that for an important reason today. I think, our, I think understanding the Reformation gives us a proper filter to understand our passage today. What do I mean by that? Well, the Reformation uh, was uh, at its heart... I love what Michael Reeves says, at its heart it was a project to move ever closer to the gospel, that we might be ever more purified and reformed as believers in the church by the word of God, that we would be reformed as a church 
by the word of God. Now, you, you may not be aware of the history of this. I've been watching some of, uh, some of the Luther specials over the last few days. And, and really what came out of the heart of the Reformation was this understanding of how is it that I can stand justified before God's holy throne. And, and if you know anything about the history of the church, the Catholic church at the time was, was coming up with all kinds of ways that you could justify yourself. And yet Martin Luther would stand as one of many who would say, no, there is, Scripture shows us only one way. And so we understand coming out of the idea of the Reformation, the five solas, that we as a church affirm that there is Scripture alone. And scripture alone testifies that it is Christ alone who can justify us before a holy God. That we receive this gift of justification by faith alone, that's the third of five solas. And that it is by the grace of God alone that we walk in this life. And we do all of these things. All of these things work together to bring glory to God alone. So those are the five solas of the Reformation. But I I say those at the outset because as we are coming to a place where we are talking about God rendering judgment on His people, I think it's important for us to have even a historical framework that God is always transforming us into the image of His Son. This morning is not about taking you back to a place in your faith where you are once again wallowing in the things that you were saved from. No, today is a day of rejoicing in what we've been saved to, but a part of what we've been saved to is walking in the ways of the Lord Almighty. It's important for us to understand this rightly because if we don't, we can fall victim to the same thing that Israel did and we begin to look to other things. In this particular case, we're going to see how Israel looked to Assyria for their hope. But at the heart of the Reformation, at the heart of the heart of God, is that his people would be reformed and that they would be able to stand before him justified. Well, why would we need to stand before him justified? Because we are sinful people. And sin cannot enter his holy presence. You may think, like, you're taking a lot of time to to kind of play out the problems that we've been saved from. And I think it's important for us to understand that foundationally so that we walk rightly and don't slip and fall into some of these same traps that Israel did as a people. It may be difficult for us to think of God as just because we prefer to think of him as loving. And we try to separate out those two things. And while God's character, the essence of who he is, is incredibly comprehensive, even too deep for words for us to put into human words. I I just so appreciate, I was in the prayer time before the meeting this morning, I just so appreciated a simple prayer this morning of, God, I don't understand how it is that you could save me, but I'm thankful that you did. There are times that it's just difficult for us to articulate the work of God on our behalf. There are times that it's difficult, there are mysteries of who God is that are are difficult for us to explain and put together and and not to overemphasize one aspect of his character against another as if we have to take his character and, and put one part of it at odds with another and that they stand as some kind of juxtaposition against one another. We wrestle with those things, don't we? But God is always reforming his church. He is always changing his people. And he is pursuing you and he is pursuing me today in doing so. Why do I take so much time kind of setting those things up? 
it's important for us to understand that only God could render the type of judgment we're about to hear. There's no earthly judge that has the authority or the power to render the judgment that we're about to hear. There, there's, no, there's no one on earth who can claim such an office. And yet there are times that we look at God through the lens of the earthly offices and we begin to get a distorted view of Him. So I say all of this at the outset to kind of remove anything that we may be thinking about experientially, remove anything that we may be thinking about in terms of what we see or even what we understand of certain offices here on earth. And as we look to the one who alone only reigns supreme over the creation that he was powerful enough to create and renders his holy judgment. I mean, we hear some similar themes echoed. We hear some similar language echoed as, as we're introduced to a people who are spiritually adulterous. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention. I mean, our, our passage last week, it ended, it, it ended with some of the same language. And this week, there's actually an additional person who is introduced on the scene. The king is thrown in to the indictment. So we had the priests and the leaders of the land the individuals that make up the nation. And this week, at the, at right halfway through verse 1, the king is also entered into this. And yet again, we realize not only how comprehensive God's being is, but we see again how comprehensive his work and his view is of the earth. All of these people in this nation have failed at this one task. Restraining evil not being ensnared by evil not being trapped by lies not giving in to looking to other things to save them to rescue them even from themselves and as we begin to work through verse 3 we're introduced to Ephraim and we kind of saw them last week but but you may realize that there are times that you hear Israel and Ephraim and really what that goes back to in covenantal language is, it goes back to Deuteronomy where there is Ephraim introduced as one of the tribes of Israel and they seem to receive this overabundance of the covenant blessings that were there for them. There was an overabundance of kind of love displayed. So that there's not just the covenant people who are set aside for this special and exclusive relationship with God. There is now within that this sect of people that receive a little bit more. It's like that child that might get that extra piece of bacon at that Sunday breakfast, right? It's like that, it's like that person in your office that, that always seems to like get a yes to their proposals. But we, we know people like this. Sometimes it's the youngest child, isn't it? I, let's, okay, I heard a little giggle because y'all agree with that one. Sometimes it's the youngest child where you're just like, look... I made all my mistakes as a parent on my two boys. So I'm not saying I'm a perfect parent to Ella, but I'm a better one. And then my boys remind me of, how, of what kind of parent I was to them. And I said, that's right, I made all my mistakes on you. So we know this kind of relationship in life, don't we? Where it seems like that person in that family, that, that person in the office, that always just gets a little more. They get a little more. Well, that's what was going on here, but it's actually a pretty damning indictment against them. 
because they wasted those extra covenant blessings. They totally wasted them. And yet again, we're confronted with an image of ourselves in the ways that we can throw away the covenant blessings of God. Now, there are times in this passage where, as the prophet Hosea is speaking, he will use the phrase Ephraim and Israel synonymously. It's important for us to understand that while Ephraim had a little extra, Israel also was throwing away their covenant blessings. So this is why I say we are confronted with this today. The times that we trade the blessing of, the the perceived blessing of the moment, the perceived feel good of the moment for the promise of eternal covenant blessing with God. That's a sin, isn't it? It's where we trade the glories of God for the moments that we're facing today. Ephraim has received this blessing of the firstborn from Jacob. And there's this special line that's traced throughout Genesis that's going to continue through his descendants, actually, that is ultimately going to come to culmination in Jesus Christ. But verse 4 introduces something that we're going to kind of spend a little bit of our time with today. Let's look at it again together. Hosea chapter 5, verse 4. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah shall also stumble with them. So here we have not only the northern kingdom, but we have the southern kingdom as well introduced in the nation of Israel. Verse 6, with their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn from them. So here we have not only the verdict of what's going on, the judgment of what's going on in the people, we actually begin to see some of the consequences of their actions, that the Lord would withdraw his presence from them. What a frightening statement. What a frightening statement. That the Lord would, would, would withdraw his presence from them. But, but let's look, before we just focus on that frightening statement, let's look at what got them there in the first place. Now we're going to look at the subject of repentance a little bit more next week. Uh, for today, I think that we should understand very simply, as Sam Storms would say, that true Christian repentance involves a heartfelt conviction of sin, a contrition over the offense to God, a turning away from the sinful way of life and turning toward God-honoring way of life. So it's not just that we're turning away from doing something, we're, we're looking to one who is better, we're looking to one who is greater. And can I say that even as a leadership team, we can struggle with this at times. You know, I've been sharing about how there are these hurdles that we can face in our relationship with God. And this is, I'm not going to call out any individuals, because I think that we're all prone to this. There, we're going through a book together, Gentle and Lowly. I've mentioned that to you before. And in our community group together as a leadership team, we will talk about at times how we will have this difficult time kind of switching our minds back and forth between a loving God and the one that we think about in Revelation, the one that rides in on the white horse and the one that comes in and he rescues and he redeems and, and he comes in and like he establishes his kingdom and it's going to reign for eternity. Like that's a vision of God. And so is the loving God who is gentle and lowly in spirit. And there can be times, even in our walk, 
that we will have a hard time toggling back and forth, and yet we're called to experience the fullness of both. So, so I say that to say, like, I'm not here just saying this is something that I've got it all figured out, just listen to how I do it, and then you do it too. What I'm here to say is, this is a common reaction. As a matter of fact, we can look even to the, the, uh, John in Scripture. He sends his own disciples and says, hey, are you sure you're the Christ? Because I didn't think it was going to look like this, like I'm about to be beheaded. His own disciples wondered as they entered into Jerusalem, is this the coronation of a king? And yet it was the beginning of his death on our behalf. I think God has a bandwidth for when we get it wrong. But he pursues us to understand him rightly. Isn't that kind of him? Isn't that kind of him not to leave us wanting to know and understand him rightly? Isn't that kind of him to reveal to us how it is that we might do that? See, verse 4 says that Israel's deeds, Israel's deeds, they're They became their motivation for sinning. But those deeds were actually preventing them from returning to God in repentance. Their deeds were preventing them. And if we go on, we'll see at the end of verse 6, or at the beginning of verse 6 in in chapter 5, it says, With their flocks and herds they shall go and seek the Lord. Well, that seems like a good thing. That seems like a good thing. Why why is it that he would render judgment against them trying to make a sacrifice to him on their behalf? Because God sees beyond the action to the motivation for the action. God sees beyond the action to the motivation for it. And this is where we begin to realize that, that sin is so much more than just the outward action. It's the thing that begins in our heart or in our mind. As I've been thinking about this this week, I've just been challenged with with my own life and and even just wrapping my head around how is it that I can help the church to understand this difference between the motivation for something and the action itself. And and it kind of dawned on me one day when I was sitting in my in-law's car. Uh, My in-laws are out of town. They're letting me uh, borrow their car because my vehicle currently looks like that uh, I ran out of sponsorship money trying a, a uh, less than lucrative street racing deal. I don't even have a radio in my car, but apparently I am, uh, I am endorsed and sponsored by Ruben Sires. So they let me borrow their car. And they have one of those key fobs. I don't even have to pull this out of my pocket. I just get in there and hit the brake and hit the start because they're fancy like that. I just get in the car and I hit the button and it starts, except that so many times this week, I'll look over like, why is the car not starting? And I realize I'm hitting the the on-off button for the stereo. (laughs) And I'm like, well, that, that explains it. That explains why the car won't start. You know, this is a little bit of a picture of what was happening with the nation of Israel. They were putting themselves in the place by going to the temple. Their deeds and their actions looked like they were doing the right thing, but why wasn't their faith moving forward? Because they were hitting the play button of their actions. They put all their hope in hitting play. They didn't put their faith in the one who has the power to motivate them to move forward. It may seem like a very simple and subtle shift 
but it makes an eternal difference in our lives. Don't hit the play button of your actions, even being here this morning, and think that that's what you can put all of your hopes in. No, he wants us to shift the weight of our hope and our confidence from our actions to Jesus Christ, as we'll see in a few moments. Shift the weight of that entirely. And he sees what Israel is doing, and he is saying, they are going through the motions. They are going through the motions. See, once again, we hear this indictment against Israel that they know not the Lord. And they, they don't understand that what he's looking for them is not their actions, it's their heart. It's their very heart. You know, I'm learning this in some relationships in life right now where, where I, I'm realizing the difference in saying a phrase like this. And it may seem like a, a simple turn of phrase, but I think it has a powerful impact. Hey, we'd love for you to come or we want you to be there. You hear the difference? Hey, show up if you want to. If you're not too busy. It sounds very releasing. It sounds very kind. I think we should be releasing in kind with people. There's a lot going on. We want you to be there. What does that say? This matters to us. There's something that's important about this to us. Oh my goodness, there's an application for church on Sundays, isn't there? We'd love for you to be here. No, I want you to be here. And it's not for the preaching. It's not for the worship. It's not for communion. It's for your relationship with God. It's for the things that he's given you for other people that I'll never see or hear about. I I want you to be here on Sundays. I want us to be gathered together. Do you hear the difference? See, Israel had started to kind of say some very kind things, but they lost the very heart of the matter. And God withdraws from them maybe as a parent you've done this before where you just think i wonder how long it will take them to notice i'm not walking with them anymore you ever done that maybe i'm a bad parent i don't know i've done it i've done it i wonder how long it will take them to realize i'm not walking with them anymore It's funny when you think about a parent doing it to a child down a grocery aisle. It's frightening when you think about a God who's going to walk with you through eternity, having that perspective of you. I wonder how long it will take for them to realize I'm not walking with them anymore. Church, we need to think about these things rightly. They matter for our faith. They become the foundation of something that we can build on that is sure and it is secure. It's far more sure and secure than our mere actions. No, it gets to the very heart. It gets to the very motivation of the things that we are called to. The indictment comes against the people of Israel that they know not the Lord, and they will not find him because their deeds are not allowing them to come in to 
his presence. <clears throat> what we're talking about here is not just a judgment being rendered by an authoritative, powerful God who can have that type of discernment and understanding of his holy law and render rightly a judgment on his own creation, but it actually has to do with disciplining the people of God. And this is an uncomfortable subject. If if we had a church discipline class, I doubt anybody would sign up for it. It's not the type of thing that you you look at and you just go, you know, I've always wondered about that. I would like to experience that. And yet, we walk through the Lord's discipline and ignore it so often. The first three years of our marriage, Stephanie and I lived in Gainesville, Florida. I was interning at a church there. I was on staff for a year and then two years officially working full-time somewhere else, but felt like I was on staff still. And I came back. We moved back to Orlando after some time, and (coughs) life was not going the way that I wanted. Life was not going the way that I had begun to divine out that, that I thought it should go. Maybe that's a better way to put it. And we went to lunch one Sunday afternoon with Danny and Melody, and I can remember sitting in the steak and ale, if that tells you how long ago it was, <laughs> over my lunch Kensington. There you go, I just made everybody hungry. And Danny looking at me and saying, do you understand that you're in a season of the discipline of the Lord? And I'm sure I gave some smart aleck answer at the time to get out of that conversation, But boy, was I. I was in a season of the Lord's discipline in my life. And it was not pleasant. I don't want to walk through it again. And I can't imagine my life without it. See, I, I was no less a son of God in that moment. But God, my Father, was disciplining me. Out of love. Out of love for me, but primarily out of a love for his glory. See, I had spent years developing a stage or a platform into something to try to bring glory to myself. I was trying to use musical skill in order to do that, to accomplish something for myself. To to, to bring some kind of like little bit of glory And it can even just be things where it's like, yes, God received the glory. I'm just going to take this a little bit. And the Lord was disciplining me over that. See, that season of discipline didn't have anything to do with being a better musician. didn't have anything to do with being a better worship leader. didn't have anything to do with technique or anything like that. It had to do with my heart. And how that heart was being displayed in my home. And there was a rot that was beginning to be in my home. And God was saying, I am actually orchestrating the circumstances of your life right now to bring you to a place of such desperation that there is no one you can look to but me. None of my children were enough. My wife wasn't enough. My job wasn't enough. I was working for a man in the church. Sorry for that, Tom. None of those things was enough. 
There was only one who was going to ever be enough. It's God himself. It's been a difficult week for sermon prep because I've been wonderfully, I think, reliving some of that time. It's been a humbling week of sermon prep. As I'm reminded of God's good work through discipline in my own life, I was no less a son. He was no less my father. But he was disciplining me. And here's the challenge for us today. This is not an Old Testament God, New Testament God thing. I would never want us to misunderstand that the character or nature of God has changed or shifted between Old and New Testaments. Let, let me give you an example of why I would say that. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Of course, that sounds like an Old Testament God thing. And do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he what? He loves. As a father, the son he delights in. New Testament, Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. There was a son that was going to ultimately stand in my place. There's a son of God that stands in your place today as well. And he has received the wrath and the chastisement and the judgment of God in full on your behalf. And God will still discipline you to bring you back in line with his ways. God will still discipline you to bring you back from your actions to the heart that's driving them. See, I think it's important for us to have a a proper framework to understand the work of the Lord correctly. Am I standing here telling you that every circumstance that you're walking through right now, everything that you're walking through is the discipline of the Lord? No. But he may be using it to discipline your heart and to keep you in his ways. See, both of those things can be true at the same time. God can use the circumstances of your life to hem you into his ways. And and here's where we can kind of get to this place where it's like, that doesn't seem fair. I haven't even had the opportunity to do the wrong thing yet. It's because God wants to spare you that. He wants to spare you the earthly consequences of that and the eternal consequences of that. But we may even get to this place where it's like, that's not fair, I didn't know. We don't stand without excuse because he trains us through his training manual. Right? I, I, I'm going to get real specific here for a second. I, I mean this in love, but parents today, I think, need to hear this. Discipline your children. Allow me to speak plainly. I am not telling you to spank your children. I am telling you to discipline them. See, we can so divide out the tools that God has given us that we actually get to a place where we excuse away all of the tools that he's given us. We should 
train our children. We should equip them for success in different circumstances that they walk through. We should discipline our children. I think I've had the opportunity to share this story before. If not, I'm going to again. This is one that kind of has universal uh, illustration copyright from Alec. One of the best disciplines we ever doled out as a family had nothing to do with spankings or anything of that sort. It had to do with socks. And you may think, well, okay, what, wait a minute. Alec was being a jerk at the dinner table. That's the biblical term. He was. He was just acting the fool. And at the time, his kind of brand, let's say, his aesthetic. Oh, I looked over for Ella. She wasn't even there for that one. His aesthetic was these high Nike socks. Oh, man, he loved those things. And Stephanie and I were at our wit's end trying to figure out how do we get to this boy's heart. Restrictions weren't doing it. Various different types of trying to get after this issue wasn't doing it. And here it was on full display at the dinner table acting the fool. And we were kind of exasperated. And then all of a sudden, in a divine moment of brilliance, I think Caleb spoke up. I think Caleb spoke up and he said this. He said, what if we made him wear no-show socks for a week at school? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to know whose attitude changed instantly? We need to be disciplined in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Parents, you are the primary disciple makers in your children's lives. May I appeal to you based on the word of God, discipline your children. Do not neglect your God-given responsibility not just to inform them, not just to equip them, but to train them through discipline for the life of godliness. I'm going to make a gospel appeal to you. I think when we don't discipline our children, we rob the gospel of its power in their lives. How'd I get there? We neglect that there's an authority who needs to be respected and answered to. And it's a difficult jump from no consequences in this life to the reason that Jesus needs to die for our sins. Do not rob your household of the power of the gospel. Discipline your children in the same way that the Lord disciplines you. It's a jump, isn't it? It's offensive. I need a Savior. You need a Savior. We are a collection of people who need a Savior. But if I've never faced consequences in this life, it can be an even more difficult jump than the offensive nature of the gospel on the surface to even hear that someone would have to die in my place. What kind of punishment is that? What kind of God would do that? You begin to hear the refrain of the day. Let's not allow for that refrain in our own homes. Discipline your children. All right. I'm going to leave that. Uh, by the way, I welcome, we're, we're going to do some more training for parenting, for marriage uh, in the new year through some sermon series. Uh, I welcome conversations on that uh, little diatribe there, but uh, I love you. I love your children. They're the future of this church. P my potential replacement, 
potential replacement for people on this stage. Let's steward that well together. Amen? All right. As we move through the book of Hosea, as we move through our chapter today, we begin to see a devastating effect. Judgment begins to be rendered. And and you hear this phrase, blow the horn, in verse 8. Blow the horn in Gibeah. And it almost may sound like, well, that's a horn of victory. No, no, no. That's a warning because of the devastation that's to come. It actually says in verse 9 that Ephraim shall become a desolation. You know, every nation aspires to this, don't they? We want to be a nation of desolation. I mean, it rhymes in everything. They, they, nobody aspires to this. Nobody starts out some kind of of governance. Nobody starts out any type of system and just thinks, I just want this to be terrible. And yet Ephraim shall become a desolation. It goes on to say that they are oppressed, that they are crushed in judgment in verse 11. And why is it that they are crushed in judgment? Because it says he was determined to go after filth, is the word used. Determined to go after filth. And we're reminded yet again of the holiness of God, a nation that would pursue filth. Verse 12 shows us the rot and the destruction that comes. I'm like a moth, like dry rot to the house of Judah. It's not built on anything. It's going to collapse in on itself. This judgment is as comprehensive as the nature of God himself. The judgment that he exacts on his covenant people because of their spiritual adultery. Because he wants to get them away from their deeds and their actions to a place where they are dependent on him. You know, we've talked about idols a few times in this, in this series. And in verse 13, we realize that, that Israel is guilty of yet another kind of idolatry. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. He's not able to cure you or heal your wound. And, And we realize again that idolatry can be anything that we trust in, anything that we put in God's place to provide for what we need in that moment. See, Israel was guilty of idolatry on a national level. They went to another nation for help that only God could provide. Last week we saw that their idolatry was so ridiculous and so perverse that they would inquire of a piece of wood. It's like like I said last week, like walking through Home Depot and going through the two-by-four section and saying, would you meet this need? I I have this lower back pain, and I just need you to heal me right now. In the piece of wood's name, two-by-four, amen. You laugh because it's ridiculous, and yet that's what God is saying to his people. That's how ridiculous your idolatry looks before my holiness. Let's inquire rightly of the Lord for the things that we want and that we need. What's your Assyria today? What's your two-by-four today that you look to in place of God? Is it your family? Is it your spouse? Don't put them in that place. 
Is it your children? Don't put them in that place. Is it your job? Don't put that in that place. Is it your car? Is it your bank account? Don't put them in that place. Is it your schedule? Is it your time? Don't put that in the place of God. What are the things that God is revealing to you that he is after in your heart and that he is using to get your attention? In verse 15, we see that just like Adam and Eve, God's people will be exiled from his presence. Not only will he withdraw from them to see if they notice it, that, they will, that there would be an ultimate exile from his presence. When God says, I will return again to my place. Until they acknowledge their guilt and they seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. This serves as a warning for us today, church. See, the good news is this. We don't have to get to this place to recognize who God is and return to him. But let's not toy around with eternity by playing with the goodness of God today. Let's not toy around with eternity by playing with the goodness of God today. See, Israel's unhappy fate will not be the last word. We're we're told in this that there is a rot and that there's a tearing and that there is a destruction that comes to the people of God. That there is a distress that comes to them in that moment until they seek his face. And what we're told in this passage is that there is a tearing, that there is a destruction, that there is a brokenness that nothing in this world will ever be able to satisfy. There is a tearing that can happen that nothing in this world will heal. But God can. And you see, this is why we call the gospel the good news. It's not just because in literary terms, the term gospel comes from those two words, which actually means good news. It's because there is bad news for us. By not following the ways of the Lord by not walking in his precepts, by not calling out for him in our time of need, by not looking to him alone as our salvation, there is bad news ahead. It is a tearing and it is a hurt and wounds that are so deep that nothing in this world will ever be able to satisfy. No vice, no amount of of wealth, nothing will be able to satisfy it. God alone can satisfy those things. That's good news. It's good news that we won't see his eternal wrath and destruction poured out on us. It's good news that we can know him even now. It's good news that he would even take the time to discipline our hearts to walk in his ways. Those are good news promises of the covenant of God. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're the bad child. It means that we are his child. And he loves us and he disciplines those that he loves. Oh, that his spirit would do both in us. That he would show us that he has filled us. And that he has given us good gifts. But may we never shift the weight of our dependence to those gifts themselves. And forget and neglect the gift giver. There's good news that comes to us. And I want us to see that good news with even just a brief look 
into next week's text as we move into a time for communion together. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, Come let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us, and on the third day, He will raise us up. Does anybody hear the resurrection language? Can we recognize the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament? And that He loves us and is pursuing us. He's telling us the ultimate resolve that's coming. That we may live before Him. Verse 3 of chapter 6. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers. As the spring rains that water the earth. See, there's good news coming for us, church. There's good news for us to receive from today. There's good news that we can, we can actually see the Lord's discipline as something that is good and healthy in our lives. It's what David experienced. Psalm chapter 139 says this, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. Now, oftentimes, this passage is quoted in different pro-life settings, and I think that that's right because it talks about being formed in the mother's womb. But at the end of that passage, this is the psalmist's words before God. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. What a bold declaration. What a bold invitation to the Lord. Does David have confidence that his thoughts and his heart are in the right place? No. He has confidence in his God to be merciful at that invitation. To be merciful in dealing with him. See if there be any grievous way in me and do what? Lead me in the way everlasting. As we prepare our hearts to go into communion today, can, can we ask the same thing? Casting ourselves not on the play button of our works, but casting ourselves on pressing start of the engine of faith. That God will meet us in our time of need. Church, I think it would be appropriate just to take a few moments now to just examine our hearts in silence. Don't be afraid of the silence that we might hear the Holy Spirit speaking to us the things that he wants to bring to a correct and proper place through his grace this morning. Can we just listen for the Holy Spirit together?
If you're in need of elements for communion, just if you would just raise your hand. Uh, we can have one of our ushers get those to you. There is a terrifying reality of the wrath of God, isn't there? It's not exactly the thing that goes on Christian-branded t-shirts these days. I understand why. But there is a terrible reality of it. See, God holds out mercy to those who would repent. Hosea depicts God coming in like a lion who will actually tear away and go away. God's wrath in Scripture is actually also portrayed as a a cup or a bowl that the wicked one day will drink of in fullness. Psalm 75 verse 8 gives us a glimpse of this when it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Revelation 14.10 also says this, that he will also drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. There is a terrifying reality to the wrath of God, but there is a beautiful reality of the good news of the gospel. Jesus drank that cup so that all who turn to him can avoid it. This is not just going through the motions when we celebrate communion. It is an immersive reminder of the goodness of God. You know, before we receive together, I, I don't want to. I don't be overly dramatic. I want to respond to what I believe the Spirit's leading. Just in our seats, we're not going to stand. We're not. We're not finishing. We're responding to the Word of God. I think it would be right. We have a, a new song that we're going to do called "Son of Suffering," and it would be right just now, not to rush this moment. But as the band leads us in this song, just continue to prepare our heart to receive rightly the goodness of God on our behalf.